I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine in the house. Daddy is outside the house. This is the most bizarre scenario I have ever been involved in in my life. Uh, in my 35 plus years in radio, uh, I am broadcasting to you from my home office, home studio uh, at home with my kid peering in through the window right here. Uh, the reason we are doing this is because us, our business, like yours, is uh, trying to thin it out and run on just the basics of everything, and that's what we're doing here and uh over the course uh well between here and the end of the week we are slowly uh pulling ourselves away from the mothership uh in order to be able to talk to you uh from various remote locations and continue to do the great show that we're doing people like will erskine uh back at the uh plant uh liz our producer content producer uh home as well so uh we're in this just like you are and we're going to try to uh maneuver our way through it and uh hold each other's hands while we all self-isolate i guess the big news of course this morning u.s and canada have closed their borders to all but essential uh, traffic meaning that that keeps the supply chain moving so uh going down to buffalo for wings or any of that stuff off the table now uh, as uh, the border between the united states and uh, Canada has been closed, which uh, I can't ever remember that happening. This is certainly a first in history, considering the relationship we have with the United States and the borders, uh, which stress, uh, stretch from east to west. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring some commentary in on all of this and kind of digest what has been happening in the last little while. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, political science professor at McMaster University. He is with us now. Uh, thanks so much for the time, Henry. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. You're brightening up my self-isolation. <laughs> I know. This is, this is a very bizarre scenario. I mean, I'm sitting here in my home office and, you know, the kid's peeking at me through the window. It's, 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 it's a very unusual situation. We've never been through this, have no, we? No, this, this, is, this is something, yeah, that this is brand new for all of us. What are your thoughts on what has happened in the announcement today that uh, that the Prime Minister made that uh, traffic between the United States and Canada, as far as over and, uh, other than essential services, has come to a halt? Well, I, I'm sure it was a bit difficult to get uh, and work out with uh, the United States an agreement on this, and particularly the details, and in order to protect uh, our supply chain, in order to protect people who live in Canada but work in the U.S. and some other some other special problems we have in terms of transportation across the border. But it would really have been nice if this happened about a week ago or more uh, before people, uh, uh, certainly some people, decided to go down south uh, for the March break because mm. what, what we have to worry about, we're going to have a wave of people coming home this weekend, and we probably have to assume that some of them will be uh, carrying the virus, and, uh, and uh, that may spike then what happens here. So that, that is my, my biggest concern, but I recognize it might not have been easy a week ago to come to that kind of agreement. Talk about that agreement a little bit. Just how would they do this? What sort of organization is involved? What kind of telephone conversation would be involved in, uh, between the, the two leaders? Hey, here's what I think we should do. We better close her down. Uh, that's, uh, what sort of process do you go through there? Well, I mean, you're going to have people. Well, first of all, you have to get the two leaders on board in principle. 
Mm. And then you leave it to the, uh, you know, for the people a little bit below them to work out and hammer out details. And particularly, you know, the Americans might not think about uh, some problems that we would have here, uh, you know, particularly our, our supply chain. And being able to sell things, what we normally do down to the States, that, that's very important to be able to do that because the government is going to be spending a great deal of money to fight this recession. So they, they need to also have companies be able to you know, continue their commerce uh, uh, with, with the United States. And so that may not have been top of mind for the Americans. So that, that might have been something that the, you know, the people two or three steps down below the, the leaders had, had to work out. And as I said, there's other special things in different parts of the of, of the country where people, both on the U.S. and Canada side, to go from one place in the U.S. to another place in the U.S., you may have to go through Canadian territory, as they have to do out in British Columbia. Hmm. There's other special things on the eastern side of our country where pe- people go back and forth. And, of course, we we tend not to see or recognize, unless it's part of our family, that there are a lot of people who work, live on one side of the border and work on the other side. And again, you don't want to keep those people from being able to travel because they, they may, you know, they have to, may do essential tasks in their business organization on the other side. So that, that, would, take, that would take a little bit of time for, for, to have that kind of understanding. You know, it's 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 funny that you should say that because many may think, well, you know, they, they when they think of border crossings, they think of the large border crossings that we have mm-hmm. here in our area or down by Windsor and such. But there's many areas across the country where this literally goes through the center of a ta- center of a town. So sure. uh, there's situations where you know people say, well, what's the big deal? Don't go to America. Well, no, maybe across the road that store that you want to go to and you've always gone to now you can't. It's a different scenario. Yeah. Well, how do you? Yeah, that's right. I mean, how do you even prevent that? Or yeah. and if you try to prevent it, you you know you're preventing somebody maybe from going from work or doing a, a financial transaction, which is really needs needs to be done. So that that yeah, you have to wonder those that work in one country live in another. I mean, there's those that do that. Yeah, well, exactly. I think there's a number of people down in the Niagara Frontier yeah, yeah. Uh, who, who do that. There's certainly a lot of people when you look in the Windsor area and the Detroit area who go back and you know who live mm-hmm. in one country and go to the you know, and, and, and go to work in the other country. So there's just more of that than people realize. So there is a lot of business travel daily that, that has to be accommodated or else you're going to freeze, you know, you're going to really mess up the, uh, you know, the uh, economic transactions close to the border. And we, that's something we don't want to do, especially that's a, some, something that we especially worry about. Most Americans don't because they don't live that close to the U.S., but most of us do live close to the U.S., and the most Americans don't live close to Canada, so they don't think about that. But we have to think about it and make sure that we don't, you know, pass some have some rigid rule associated with this um, sort of order, and that uh, you know that people, American border people, are going to enforce it, you know, literally or very rigidly, and then then all sorts of problems will develop. So they, I'm sure they they had to worry about that, and that had had to be really ironed out. I think probably over the last week. But as I said. We really needed something like this a week ago or more. So th- there, there's two things we have to worry about. There are two, uh, two waves that, uh, that are really coming at us. We're going to have these people, as I said, who are coming back from the spring break, uh, who went away last weekend. They're going to come back this weekend. And we're going to have another bigger wave, and that's the uh, snowbirds who are down in the United States. And they're going to come back. 
Now, we have to assume that both waves are going to have people that are going to, uh, you know, that are going to uh, have, have the virus. And uh, so that is going to be a challenge. Um, w- one of the challenges, certainly for the first one and for some of the second, is, is that uh, pe- people are going to show up for airports, say, in the United States, and they may have the virus, and uh, will they be able to get on a plane and come, up, uh, come back to Canada at that point? Uh, that would seem to be unfortunate because you don't want sick people going to the airports where travelers go to, the, go to Canada. You certainly don't want them on the plane. Uh, but as far as I can tell, most of the testing or checking on people as to whether they're ill or not happens after they've boarded the plane and came, came back to Canada. In the case of the um, snowbirds, I think most of them will probably come back by car, so that won't be as big a problem. But still, we don't want people coming back, uh, you know, who, who might, might be ill on a plane. And although, you know, we know that they now try to change the air uh, very frequently inside the airplane and, and, and make, it, make it as germ-free as they can. But even so, you don't want people who are sitting next to somebody who, is, uh, who does have the symptoms. Henry, uh, thanks for staying on the line with us. Uh, the question I wanted to ask you historically, has this ever happened? Have we ever seen anything like this in Canada-U.S. history? I, I certainly can't remember. Uh, if it did, it escaped my attention, but I don't believe we've ever had anything like this. Uh, 9-11 even wasn't quite to this extent, no. was it? Well, I mean, I think they're uh, actually in a crazy way. Uh, 9-11 looks very simple compared to what we got now because it was something that happened one day. We were all glued. We saw it. But then uh, certainly what happened uh, there very quickly, and maybe th- this is something maybe we should have done, is uh, basically the U.S. shut off its airspace. And mm-hmm. uh, that's one thing. And, of course, we know that we have all sorts of stories about all these planes uh, had to land at different airports. Uh, Newfoundland got a whole bunch. Hamilton Airport got some of American mm-hmm. planes who couldn't go home. And uh, we have plays about them. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah. so it's a big thing in our mythology. And uh, it, so we acted very quickly there. But certainly, yeah, we had a situation where, and I was in the U.S. at the time, uh, visiting uh, visiting relatives, and it was sort of odd to go outside. And I was near a very big Air Force base, and, and uh, there was just no planes. You'd hear no planes in the air and, uh, for, for days, and that, that was kind of weird. Uh, but, but the, so, there was, so we cut off the airspace. Uh, the U.S. cut off the airspace very quickly, but uh, cutting off the land border, I don't think the American, I don't think we did anything like that. Uh, they say that leaders are defined during moments like this in our history. How do you think our leadership is faring in all of this? How do you think we will look back at all of this? Well, certainly I think the, the Canadian government is really working very hard uh, to try to, uh, you know, mitigate the problems here, and especially on the financial side. There is a, I mean, we, we've heard a lot of details today and previously about how the government is going to try to get in, get money to Canadians so that they will have money to spend, uh, so the economy won't freeze up, that people will not, you know, basically go, go hungry, and also that people will, self, will isolate themselves and not worry about being paid because they'll get some money from the government to do that, which is really critical to sort of, you know, as they say, bending the curve, or that is trying to, you know, hold down a, a really massive peak of people getting ill at the same time. So I, I think the Canadian government has done very well on this. 
when we have to negotiate with the U.S. on a joint thing, it's, it takes a little bit longer, and that's why I think, uh, as I said earlier, that uh, probably maybe the Canadians wanted to do that uh, a, a week ago. I'm not sure. I'm maybe speculating here. But even if they did, they probably could, could, you know, couldn't get the Americans to agree to the details that needed to be agree on, agreed on until today. So, um, yeah, so that's... Uh, that that that's a, that's a you know that is that's a big problem. But it's certainly, in, I think Ottawa, the people in Ottawa, have been doing very very well in terms of trying to make sure that we're going to get through this financially and, and health wise. The one thing I I do I am concerned about, and I mentioned this before uh, before we did go to break, is that uh, the, the ways of discouraging people who are ill getting on a plane to go to Canada. And what we're hearing about is that there were initially it was they weren't maybe perhaps uh, uh, taking care of people getting off the plane a, a week ago in, uh, coming you know who if they were coming from outside the country we will probably have solved that now I think they probably are are carefully uh, looking at that but really I think the important thing is to prevent people and discourage people from coming to an air uh, to a uh, to an airport where they're going to get on a, a plane to Canada, and, and by saying that we're going to have people at that that destination checking you before you even get on the plane. So somebody coming back from you know can, the U.S. Uh, probably now doesn't know whether the person next to them really is infected or not. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in David Hyde, security consultant, David Hyde and Associates. He's with us now. David, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Boy, uh, we haven't talked in a while. Your thoughts how this has unfolded to date, uh, culminating with this closure uh, for all but non-essential goods between Canada and the United States. Yeah, I mean, we've been working towards this, Scott, for a little bit of time. And frankly, it's been a bit of political theater really the reason why it didn't happen a bit earlier. On Monday, the government announced that we were closing um, in, in, you know, incoming from other countries, uh, encouraging Canadians or, or asking them to come home, really in a, in a you know, move to try to close down the border uh, to essential connections only. The U.S. was given as an exception to that on Monday, but it was frankly completely um, you know, uh, uh, without any, any merit. There was no empirical data to support that the U.S., transfer should be allowed it was to buy a bit of time and and characteristically we saw mr trump's tweet today which came out before anything else to announce of course because he has to be first uh, to the message mm-hmm. that this was going to be happening very shortly today so what does it take to make this happen what sort of what sort of negotiation goes on or, or needs to happen before this can happen yeah there, there, there's definitely a lot scott behind the scenes there's obviously you know 20 something million um people that go across from Canada into the U.S., and about double that that come back the other way. So there's obviously a huge amount of work that has to happen um, because they have to really, Scott, carve out exceptions and identify what's an essential, necessary service where they must remain open border for those exceptions, and that can take some time. So in this particular um, virus, of course, there are certain services that are required whether if you, cross, uh, if you shut down the border for a different reason, you may need to carve out different exceptions. So I think a lot of the negotiation uh, that's been going underway with Canada and the U.S., given it's such a massive exchange of people crossing the border, is what are those criteria for exceptions? 
what's an essential requirement and who will they who will they let across but shutting the border isn't that difficult in actual fact it really is defining exceptions will this affect now we've heard that obviously this is for uh, people going back and forth goods and services such will continue to flow we have to keep the supply chain open for obvious reasons we saw hoarding earlier on in the week for really no reason other than fear um that being said will this reduction i don't know if there's necessary a reduction in border services nobody has reported that but will this somehow slow the transportation of goods or will this actually make it a lot more free simply because there's not a lot of other people there uh that, that obviously uh, tie up the border i think initially scott it might slow things down just a little it's inevitable given that there's so much has changed and there are going to be people that are trying to skirt around the issue. They want to try to, you know, prove that they need to cross the border, et cetera. That, you know, so there could be a little bit of attempts to cross the border under the veil of goods, essential services, et cetera. So in my view, well, probably for the first few days while this gets going, there'll be a little bit of, of, a, of a maybe minor delays, a little bit of difficulty uh, getting through uh, with the goods and services getting through uh, I think in a a limited way. I do believe once things ramp up, once people get used to their brief and once uh, the exceptions are clear and there's some media exposure around it, I would expect the flow of goods to be maintained quite nicely and we may even see some improvements once we really are only funneling through uh, goods and services and um, making it, um, you know, essential people uh, exceptions for the transfer across the border. How long can the two countries operate this way? Any thought? Well, it really comes down to health versus economics, right? And that's what we're seeing here, Scott, globally is, you know, and it's so fascinating. And I, I say that with hesitation because, of mm-hmm. course, it is a very serious thing. And there are people that unfortunately are, are suffering through it. So, of course, I don't say that lightly, but... It is fascinating academically to look at what countries are taking what approach and why they're doing it that way. And I think to me, what we look at here is, of course, it's going to be a massive economic impact um, in Canada, in the U.S., through for commerce, for industry, for all the affected aspects. But the key question here is, you know, is this going to be something uh, that the with collective will, we can sustain for a fairly short period of time when you compare it to a year or even a lifetime. This is probably going to be a couple of months exercise. It could be three or four weeks, but more likely, in my estimation, from what I'm reviewing and seeing, probably an eight-week process where there's going to be some significant disruption to the way we all live our lives. But if we can make that sacrifice for two months, the payoff is much less Canadians killed through this virus, much less uh, impacts and harms. And I think that's a battle worth fighting. Uh, we certainly have seen this conversation shift more to one of health and the drastic measures that we're now witnessing today. As you look through this lens uh, from from a security expert's point of view, what concerns you about this? Is there any, uh, obviously our major concern here is health, and then after that, the finance of getting us through all of this. But does this weaken our security in any way? How, when you view this from a, a security lens, how do you how do you how do you see things? Yeah, I mean, look, no, no doubt that we're having to get used to a really a new way of, of life in many respects. And that is going to open up uh, potential opportunities for people with a criminal mind or for, or for open up kind of new risk vectors. 
Now, I'm not seeing anything obvious, Scott. We're going to have a lot more people at home, a lot less people out. Frankly, that's thinning down to a degree the number of, for commercial crime, the potential is going to be lower. For certain types of crime tied to alcoholic beverage consumption in bars and clubs and things. So there are going to be a number of crime types and risk exposures that will be reduced. But also, we have to think about what it means to be all um, huddled at home and and what that might bring in terms of risk and uh, criminals knowing where people might be and being able to attract uh, a different type of criminal or crime because criminals don't take a break. They're working as hard on what they do. Scott is how you do your job and and how I do mine. So I, I do expect to see a little bit of flux, a bit of a change um, in terms of how we might see security issues and crime issues flow out. But I, I'm not expecting any major crime wave associated to this, Scott, to be honest. I think what we're going to see potentially, if there's a little bit of panic sets in anywhere, is maybe break-ins where there are goods that are really, really coveted, whether right. that be food, whether it be the medical type supplies. I mean, I think that, is, to me, is probably an increased risk factor that the authorities and commercial organizations uh, that handle those goods should be thinking about for sure. What what about your thoughts on what has happened in Europe, how they have controlled this or, or not? Uh, what can we learn from this here in North America? Well, look, the, the World Health Organization makes it clear. They've, they've fought this these kind of viruses before. I personally have been involved right back to to SARS and, and MERS and H1N1 and been involved in very large corporations, dealt with government and worked on these plans and that. And it's the same thing, Scott, here, except this virus is a little different and I think it, uh, it presents a little bit of a different threat profile to the, to, to the population. And the WHO make it clear, isolate, test and treat. And, and what I think that some countries have got right, you look at a country like South Korea, where up until Monday... They had done 248,000 tests, like COVID-19 tests of their population. As of Monday, Canada had done 34,000. The U.S. had done 23. And what we're seeing, I believe, Scott, and again, I'm not a medical professional, but I, I can read stats and, and I'm a, you know, I, I need to know this information to service my clients. Um, what we're seeing is that the, the countries that get ahead of this make testing widely available. Don't put testing barriers up. What we're seeing in Canada and the U.S. and things is you have to, A, have, be symptomatic. Well, we know this virus is spreading through asymptomatic people, and you also need to um, have maybe traveled to a country outside that may be at risk or had exposure to someone who's done that. That's a pretty tall order for testing. So what we're finding is a lot of people aren't getting, that, that have the virus aren't getting tested. The countries that are getting this right, like South Korea, 50 million population, a lot more than we've got, quite a lot more than we've got, they are being very aggressive on the testing, and they're also following up with the isolation and the other types of prescriptions. And that's what Canada is doing a reasonable job, better than the states, not as good as South Korea, not as good as some other countries. And our government needs to coalesce a lot of resources and time around ramping up significantly the testing and the isolation. And I would not be surprised, Scott, I'm not being a a fearmonger here, but I do believe the government right now is looking at the Emergency Authorities Act, which would be a fairly unprecedented step. It's been the FLQ crisis the last time that a similar act, the War Measures Act, was enacted. I would not be surprised to see the federal government 
uh, call Parliament back and possibly go down that road so they can get better control over certain aspects to really, really try and tamp this down. There's been many questions, uh, David, in regard to if there are enough tests, uh, and that question pretty much came up when the Prime Minister said, no, I'm not going to get tested because I'm already uh, in isolation, and that would take the test from somebody else. Now, if you're thinking if a world leader is doing that, uh, obviously there are not enough tests. Can there be enough tests for uh, a virus that's so new? Um, Are there enough tests? Well, I mean, it depends who you ask. Uh, you know, certain countries officials have said that there are enough tests, but they just can't. They haven't got the resources. They're staffing. It's also right. got the physical location. You can't get people down to the hospital ER department to do it because they're going to infect everyone else. Mm-hmm. So you have to sometimes, especially in rural areas, the government must commandeer property to set up these testing areas, staff them appropriately. So there's a lot of logistics and planning that has to go in. And frankly, having gone through SARS and the other H1N1, these are things that have been thought of, and there are rough and loose plans around this. It looks to me as though there was a little bit of a slow start in Canada, although they, they did t- turn quite quickly and have been much more aggressive and, frankly, I think doing a better job. The U.S. has been exceptionally slow. But, yeah, it's, it's not as simple as just uh, having, you know, a million test kits. You need to be able to completely surround that with the resources and the follow-up uh, to that. And I think that's where we're struggling. It's not just the test kits. And of course, now you've seen the US ordering companies under their emergency act to make more test kits. So mm. it's all coming full circle. Testing is so critical. And I think we need to hold our governments to hold, to, 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 you know, really to, to, uh, to, to account on the testing. And that's a federal government program that needs to lean forward and improve our testing program still. David Hyde has been with us. David Hyde and Associates, security consultant, uh, looking at this issue through a security lens. David, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. How has this virus impacted our city? We certainly hear what's happening uh, in other parts uh, all across the country. Uh, How has this impacted city services? Let's bring in Paul Johnson, director of our emergency operations center in the city of Hamilton and is with us now. Paul, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, thanks very much, Scott. Glad to be here. So, Paul, how has this changed your day-to-day job? How does this change what you've been doing uh, on a routine, on a regular basis? Uh, so, last Thursday, uh, we activated our emergency operations center, and this is, uh, for some of us now, our full-time job. Uh, so, I, uh, I have uh, turned over some of the general duties of the general manager of Healthy and Safe Communities Department to others, and uh, a number of us have been working in our emergency operations center uh, full time and um, you know through long days uh, certainly since last Thursday when we began a, a more formal activation and that is uh, what has allowed us to do what is unprecedented in this city this size as a shutdown of city services related to an emergency scenario uh, has never happened in the history of the amalgamated city of Hamilton and that is through SARS that's through H1N1 that is through uh, uh, power failures that is through ice storms. So what you're talking about is an unprecedented scale, and thank goodness we do our training, and thank goodness we have people assigned uh, to jump mm-hmm. in and, and um, support myself and others in the Emergency Operations Centre. Tell us a little bit more about that Operations Centre and, and what its objective is, what, what your focus is. 
So what it does is it brings together key people from across the organization, and the, the obvious ones are all the operational arms of the city. So we have representatives from each department who act as liaisons with all of the city services that exist. We have all of our first responders in the room, police, fire, and paramedics. Uh, but we also have the important functions of finance, uh, logistics, so we can source materials, human resources. And then we have a group called planning who both keep us on track in terms of documenting the decisions that we make, but also begin to turn their heads within the first couple of days of any emergency towards our advanced planning. How are we going to uh, get ourselves uh, back on track once the emergency uh, runs its course? Um, most frequently, that happens a couple days after. And of course, in the, the case of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, uh, that could be uh, several weeks to several months down the line. But what How it, difficult is it allows is... us to be very flexible and, and have a communication and, and quite frankly, a, a chain of command structure that allows us to make decisions very quickly. And what the public has seen is those examples that on a daily basis, uh, we have used the best information available. We've taken the best advice possible, particularly from medical officers of health, both at the local, provincial and federal level. And we've changed our approach uh, on a dime. So the speed of which we can make decisions is a product of having the right people in the room and then having them uh, farm out uh, information to those uh, on the front lines. How difficult this is? How difficult is it to plan such a uh, such process when we really don't know what the future holds? Well, you know, the reality is, is we use the information we have on a daily basis and we make the best decisions we can at that time. And I know for. Uh, many in the community, they've seen us, uh, you know, start in, in a direction and then change direction, sometimes uh, literally overnight. And the latest example of that was when we decided to absolutely shutter uh, city facilities to the public uh, the other day. And that, that work happened well into the evening and overnight we were putting up signs and locking doors. So uh, what we do is we, uh, you know, the reason why we're full time here is that uh, information changes minute by minute sometimes in the early stages of this crisis. Uh, now we're into a phase where uh, information is kind of coming more daily, uh, but we're still having to do lots of, of different pieces of work. There are obvious services at the City of Hamilton which are geared for this and, and continue unabated uh, uh, through, through any crisis, and those are, of course, our essential services, things like water, uh, things like our emergency services, uh, paramedics, fire, police. So they're well-suited to just keep moving. But in this case, how do we operate some very important services to keep business moving, to keep construction going, to do the kinds of things that don't encourage people to get together and spread uh, the virus, but keep our city moving. Uh, so this isn't a total shutdown, uh, uh, you know, yet. It feels like it in some places, but the reality mm -hmm. is we have to keep things moving. So how do we do that in a safe way for the public, in a safe way for our staff? And that's where a lot of our work has been, certainly in the last 24 hours. Only got about a minute left here, uh, Paul. What advice do you have for Hamiltonians who are listening to us? Absolutely, positively follow the health advice that's out there. Uh, travel only if it's essential, and that even includes travel around the community. Uh, wash your hands regularly. You don't have to find those hand sanitizer bottles. Uh, soap and water will do just fine. Practice social distancing, both personally within your family setup, but obviously when you're out in the community. Uh, this is a, a social phenomenon that we can, we can slow down the spread of this virus by taking those uh, very straightforward steps. And uh, the bottom line is, is that uh, the more we do um, uh, to stop the spread of this, uh, the, the easier the path forward over the next coming uh, weeks and months will be. 
Paul Johnson has been with us, the director of our Emergency Operations Center in the city of Hamilton. It is wide open and heads of all of the major organizations involving EMS, finance, what have you, all involved in this under one umbrella, uh, taking care of the city as we move forward. Paul, thank you so much for the time and insight. Good luck with all of this. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Many businesses are uh, doing their part to step up, and here's another example of that. A Niagara region-based distillery has gained a lot of traction for making hand sanitizer using their liquor for first responders and uh, emergency personnel. To talk more about all of this, Jeff Dillon is with us from Dillon Distillery. He's on the line now. Jeff, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure. So first, tell us about Dillon's Distillery. Yeah, so we're about uh, an eight-year-old distillery down in Beamsville, and we've been taking local grain and grapes for uh, the last eight years and turning it into some unique spirits. And where did you get the idea that uh, it might be it might be wise to to start into the hand sanitizer uh, production? Well, you know, like we're sitting around. My, my wife, being a doctor, we've got we've got lots of sanitizer around, and I always love looking at it and going, "Well, that's sixty-five percent alcohol. Uh, we make that." We just don't call it sanitizer. We, we water it down to vodka. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, people start asking. And uh, last Friday we started uh, adding some aloe in, making it nice, uh, you know, giving it some moisture and giving that away in the store. And then Whitney, who's on the line with me, uh, she, I think Tuesday night, texted and said, I think we can do more. What can we do? And we said, why don't we do big bottles of high proof and people can use it to disinfect anything. Wow, Whitney, uh, your thoughts on how this uh, people have responded to this? Are you surprised? Um, you know what? It's really been really shocking and and really surprising to see how many people have reached out um, from you know the medical field, from those essential services um, first responders that don't have access to hand sanitizer or disinfectant right now because they've run out because no one can get it. It's been really 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 like shocking to see how many people have reached out so how much of this stuff have you and you're giving it away is that accurate that's accurate yeah no charge. Yeah. And, and so how much of this have you given away so far so as of today we're at uh, over three thousand bottles wow so what is the process uh how do you go from taking something that you're going to make into vodka or perhaps something else and then stop and turn it into hand sanitizer what's that process yeah the secret is it's not really that much different um you just want to you want a very strong alcohol to kill uh, it's just one has soap in it i guess one has soap in it or something to 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 soften your skin the other one doesn't i mean what what, at what point in the process uh, do you say nope this doesn't go into a bottle this goes into a uh, hand sanitizer yeah, and to, to to be clear, the stuff we're we're giving out now has some um, you know some byproducts and distilling heads and tails, so it's not really it's not potable. You you wouldn't want to drink it. It's got other right. alcohols in there. So this but is it, this is the byproduct of stuff that you're making. Yeah, we, we could take it and clean it up and turn it into an awesome vodka, but uh, right. instead we're, we're turning it into we're keeping it very strong at sixty five percent, so it's perfect for killing uh, germs and bacteria and viruses. Now, that being said, uh, and this is completely unrelated, is there some sort of new product on the horizon that somehow is uh, uh, incorporating both? Uh, maybe maybe you buy a, a bottle of the product and you get a bottle of the distilled uh, uh, hand sanitizer to, to go along with it. I mean, where can you go with this? 
I mean, that's how we started on Friday was every online order. We're just, we'll throw in our little bottles of sanitizer uh, until we run out. And, and then it's just gone from there. So who knows what the future is. <laughs> it's been 12, been 12 hours since yesterday's kind of social media post where we said we'd do these big bottles. And it's just been, it's been mayhem. And so what sort of bottle does it come in? How big are these bottles? I, you know, I'm thinking of like, you know, uh, you know, a typical alcohol bottle, but it's got a hand pump on the top. So yeah, the, so um, you, oh. you, go ahead. you go right ahead with me. Oh, sorry. So the hand sanitizer that we've um, bottled and packaged up is in a smaller format. It's in a 100-milliliter bottle. Right. Um, so there's those, and it's we're using aloe vera juice. So it's, it's not a, a gel. It's not like a pump gel-type right. bottle. Right. Um, it is, it is a, a liquid that you can spray with a pump, which is our, you know, like a little aerosol right. kind of sprayer. Um, right. The higher-proof disinfectant that we're using, it's, it's in a 750-milliliter bottle, and we, you know, slapped a label on it. The packaging isn't pretty, but that's really not the point. It's really mm-hmm. just more about what's inside the bottle. How difficult was it to come up with a package for all of this? Well, we're using the bottles we had in the back in our warehouse. So it really is. It's our spirit bottle with a screw cap hilarious. on it. It's so what do... We, we, labels came off of our uh, our case label printer. It's like a thermal printer that does terrible quality labels, but that's right. that's what we have. So that's what's on there. Just trying to get it out there. So uh, this starts as uh, extremely strong alcohol, and you would, I guess, then uh, process it and water it down to make whatever beverages out of it. What do you do at that point? What do you add to it to make it a hand sanitizer? You talked about aloe. Is it just basically this and aloe in the in the in the mix? So we've been doing two separate things. We've been doing the small little um, with aloe included hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. That's perfect for your hands and gives you that moisture. All the aloe does, though, is it's just moisturizer. Um, right. But in these big bottles today, because we've bought all the aloe we can possibly find and we're near us. Right. Uh, we, and we saw this huge demand from every kind of crazy, like every police department, every fire department, everybody everybody needs some, some disinfectant. So this is just our distilling byproduct, just alcohol, ethanols, and a bunch of other alcohols in there at 65%. And what has the response been like? Uh, well, first, let's start. When did you start doing this? When did you first realize that you could do this? We, um, <laughs> so really, it started Friday of last week where um, we picked up some aloe vera juice, and Jeff and I made a really, really tiny batch of it and just started handing it out um, to guests as they were coming in. And like Jeff said, you know, including it in online orders just as a little token and, you know, because right. we did... We did know that the shortage was there, um, but this all really kind of ramped up on Monday night um, with this just quick conversation of, you know, feeling like we needed to, to try to contribute more and, and do more to help um, as many people as we could. Um, so it, we slapped it together really, really quickly. We put a, a post out on social media, and that's all we've done um, about this time yesterday, and we've seen... Over a thousand emails and countless, countless messages on social media of people that are are trying to to get. What a great idea! How how has this helped promote your own business? I mean, many we're hearing so many stories about small businesses that are that are really feeling the impact of of the coronavirus and such. Uh, how has that affected your business? How has this helped it with all of that? We're we're honestly twelve hours in from from that first 
Huffington Post. So yeah. right now it's still a really strange time because there's people aren't going to be coming down to the store to buy spirits. I mean, nobody's nobody's traveling. Right. Um, we have no idea what's happening at the LCBO right now. We don't restaurants are closed, which was our huge. They were our biggest supporters. So right. we're not really sure what the future holds right now. But for now, we had this stuff laying around, so we, we felt we'd do what we could. So if somebody wants some, how, how do we get a hold of this stuff? Yeah, so if someone um, is looking for some of the hand sanitizer, they can call or email, and we can help to set some aside for them. They can stop into the distillery. Um, we are still open um, on a very, very, very skeleton staff. Um, so the, the sipping room is open from 11 to 5. They can pop in and, and pick up some of the hand sanitizer. If we have essential service workers and you know, those nurses and doctors and and police, anyone that needs sanitizer or disinfectant, they can reach out and we can certainly help to get get some to them as well. And website we can go to to find out any more on this? Yeah, so website, you can go to dillons.ca or you can email in at info at dillons.ca. Our phone number's on the website. You can call as well. The phone has not stopped ringing. All right, Dillon's Distillery has been with us, Jeff Dillon and Winnie Roarson uh, with sales. A Niagara region-based distillery gaining a lot of traction, making a hand sanitizer using uh, byproducts from what they use to distill that you can drink. Uh, and it is getting a great response. Jeff and Whitney, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with this. Thank thanks. you. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You've uh, heard the Prime Minister uh, speak this morning and uh, the latest information uh, that is pretty, pretty shocking to a lot of us is that the United States and Canada have closed their border. As a result, uh, no, you can't whip over to Buffalo for wings or any of that sort of thing. Uh, the goods and services, they will continue to flow freely between the two countries. That is needed to keep the supply chains and such open and, uh, and stop people from hoarding and doing other things that we saw, you know, a, a week or so ago. So good news is this is not going to affect the food chain, the supply chain in any way. We've heard from various people in the food industry and such saying that there is nothing to worry about as far as supply. There is plenty there. If you need to go to the store and grab what you, you need grab what you need and go home there's no need to uh to stock up or any of that uh what what aggravates the supply chain is when all of a sudden there's a sudden surge for some reason and uh, officials are telling us that there is uh, no reason uh, for that at this time as we close the border with the united states and canada uh, to talk more about all of this let's bring in ian lee sprott school of business carleton university he is with us now ian thank you for the time much appreciated my pleasure uh, your thoughts on the announcement this morning uh, in regard to closing the borders uh, between the United States and Canada, how significant is this? Um, I wasn't shocked, uh, although believe me, it's it's unprecedented. I'm, I'm 66 years old and I do not remember in my lifetime such an event. And I've mm-hmm. been crossing that border since I was a child when our parents would take us across at uh, Prescott, Ontario on the St. Lawrence to Ogdensburg for day picnics on the U.S. side, and I've been crossing that border, and I've just never, ever, even after 9-11, uh, I was crossing the border. And uh, I don't mean the day of, but I mean, I, I crossed the border. I think it was I was in Europe when 9-11 happened, and I flew back in to Canada, and from Canada I flew into uh, the U.S. where I was on sabbatical and had no problem. 
and uh, and here we are closing the border. But I, I thought it was inevitable because there is a determination by the uh, the leaders of the major countries, uh, U.S., Canada, uh, European countries, to uh, really, really try and um, ensure that just about everybody is quarantined, or ma- quarantined is too strong, to make sure that everybody is self-isolated. And uh, and there's a lot of people that cross that border every day, both ways. Yeah. And uh, so it was inevitable. It was it was really not a sustainable position, saying, you know, we got to stop all foreign travel, but by the way, we're accepting the U.S., and they were really trying to protect the supply chain, properly so. And then I, I realized, well, you can protect the supply chain while stopping um, personal uh, travel uh, for tourism and just pleasure. And that's what they've done. They're not stopping the truckers. They're not stopping the people that are uh, doing business across the border. However they define that, I do not know. But, I mean, they're stopping people like me, <laughs> or as yeah. you put it, going across to Buffalo for wings. That's going to stop for now. And, and it's going to be a while. I mean, this is not going to be rescinded, I don't believe, in three or five days. I think that, that that'll be there. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to predict the future, but I expect it to be in place for, you know, a month or two or three, as long as it takes to, to, to for before someone can stand up in the two countries and say the crisis is over and uh, it's no longer, um, uh, the coronavirus is no longer spreading. And I don't hear, don't think that anyone thinks that we're anywhere near that announcement. So yeah, that that's it. You bring up a very interesting point, too, uh, and no one has said this of yet, and perhaps it's too early to do so, but w- I wonder what the criteria is for reopening the border. Uh, yes, exactly, and telling people they can go back and start acting normally and going out to music concerts and football games and hockey games and uh, restaurants, <laughs> you know, mm. just our ordinary life. And, and that's really because it's really the same question. And um, I, uh, at the beginning, and I mean the beginning, like a week or two ago, I thought, well, you know, in a month or so, this will burn over, burn through, and then we'll be, you know, going back to normal. And now I'm reading from people at the top. So this isn't me speculating. Uh, Trump said, and I'm not saying that he's an expert, but he is surrounded by experts who are giving him advice. And he said this could go, could go into July. Mm-hmm. And I've read a couple of uh, public health officials in the States that said it could go into August, September. So, you know, this may go through the entire summer. And I just do, I do not know. I do not pretend to know because I'm not an epidemiologist. And, I mean, the epidemiologists are arguing over how long it's going to last for. So, I mean, we are speculating about the future. And it's something you and I have talked about before in the context of economic forecasts. And I've long argued. I used to get in debates with uh, my friend who was then the chief economist at Unifor, Jim Stanford. And I remember he said once, I, I proved that the, the, the economic plan of the conservatives in 2011 election was wrong. And I said, Jim, you can't prove the future is wrong because the future hasn't arrived yet. <laughs> Nobody can prove the future is wrong because it hasn't happened. We can only talk about the past. It's happened. So we can debate, you know, did Rome fail in whatever, 454 B.C. A.D., and why did it fail? But there's no question it failed. But you can't say that with certitude about the future because, well, it hasn't happened yet. How difficult it? How difficult is it to close such a border? Should we have done this earlier, or is it a lot more difficult than people think? I think it is a lot more difficult because there are going to be some people who uh, show up who will claim that they're on business. Let's say I'm a consultant. Uh, I'm not, by the way. Uh, but let's say I showed up at the border and said, look, I've got clients in the United States. Does that constitute? And they say, well, no, it's yeah. trade. Well, first off, why privilege trade? I mean, there is trade in services as well as trade in goods. And, um, and, and what if you uh, are 
going there not with a shipment of goods in the back of your truck, but you're going there to sign some papers to facilitate the trip the shipment of goods in the truck to come bo- over the border at a later date. I mean, you get into all of those, you're going to have border guards uh, playing God, uh, playing you know philosopher almost. You know what constitutes a business trip? What constitutes a trade and commerce? I mean, with tourists, it's very easy. They show up and they say, I'm going to Disneyland for a holiday. Well, Disneyland's closed anyway. So um, mm. I, I think a lot of the cross-border uh, personal traffic had probably collapsed anyways. Uh, because people, if people are staying home and obeying the, uh, the order or suggestion to stay home on both sides, I mean... Uh, most people are, and they're not going mm-hmm. out of their house. I drive. Well, yeah, a lot of people are commenting on what should be open, what should be closed, and, and a lot of the reason things are closing, uh, just as much as, as the health aspects of the virus, is that there's no traffic, so there's no sense staying open, right? Yeah, no customers. So, I mean, I think some of this was gratuitous. Um, ironically, the harder one to enforce will not be the tourists, the so-called individuals just going for pleasure travel. Most of them, I think, have self-censored themselves, self-selected themselves into their house, and they're not going anywhere. The, the trickier one will be those um, who are uh, showing up and uh, and they're claiming they're on business. And, I mean, how do you know? I mean, you don't carry around a great big sign on your forehead that says, I am a bona fide businessman or business person. And, uh, you know, if you show up as a truck driver, it's kind of obvious. You've got a truckload. But I'm talking, there's a lot of people that cross the border for business reasons that are not driving a truck. And uh, so it's going to be, it'll be very interesting to see how that they, they enforce that over the uh, the days and weeks ahead, because there is a lot of, um, uh, people may not realize this, but they are, our service exports have been growing yeah. much, much faster than our goods exports. Services are, you know, accounting services and legal services and consulting services. And and the, 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 the expertise is in the brain of the person crossing the border. And uh, so are we going to stop them just because they're not sitting in a truck with physical stuff in the back of the truck? I don't know. It'll be very, as I said, very intriguing to see how they enforce this. How concerned are you about small business? We've had a, a few small business people on the air in the last couple of days and such. The prime minister announced today that there would be help. Um, but, you know, by the time that trickles down to the person that's actually paying the bills, it may not be uh, in time. Where, where are we going to see small business go in all of this? They are by far and away the most vulnerable. And I'm not giving you a textbook answer. Uh, many years ago in my previous career, before I became a professor in the very late 80s, I worked for uh, not quite 10 years in banking in Ottawa, in the Bank of Montreal, where I lent millions and millions of dollars over that period of time, and uh, to small and medium-sized businesses, as well as mortgages. And one thing I learned over that nine years in banking was uh, that small and mid-sized businesses are nowhere near as affluent and successful as many people think. Mm-hmm. Many people I know have friends who know someone who's a small business, and they say, oh, he's really successful. You know, he's got three cars parked out front. And I saw, as someone inside the bank looking at the financials, that many small businesses are nowhere near as prosperous or, or um, uh, they don't have as much net worth as people who do not know the business and are not privy to their financials realize. They think that the person's a you know, big, uh, very successful business person, and, uh, and they're often deeply in debt. And small businesses are by far and away the most vulnerable because they're the most indebted by and large, and they're the least capitalized. They have the least capital resources. Big businesses have deep, deep, deep resources. They can go a long, long time before they 
if they before they fail. It took General Motors literally 25, 30 years to, to run into the ground. They had that much resources. They were so huge, so wealthy, it took them almost 30 years to drive the organization into the bankruptcy. Small businesses can go into bankruptcy in a, in a month or two because they're small. They're, they're very small. And, so, and because they employ so many people, and you've, some people quote the figure of 60%. I've actually seen figures from CFIB of 90% of all private sector employment. The point is they employ millions of people, and they're undercapitalized, and they're always on the edge, hanging on by the fingernails. And if you go with a month or two without revenues, you're out of business. Mm-hmm. And, and this represents millions of people. Uh, very quickly, Scott, I looked up the StatScan uh, data because I like to be evidence-based. There are... This is StatsCan data from January of 2020. Two million Canadians employed in what they call the category is wholesale and retail sales. And then there's another 1.3 million Canadians employed in a category called accommodation and restaurants. That's 3.3 million people, and those categories are overwhelmingly small business. And they're all vulnerable. And I'm not saying everyone will fail in in 30 days. I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying they're vastly more vulnerable than big business. And they employ enormous numbers of people. And and so I'm really, really worried about about that. Yes, we have unemployment insurance for, or employment insurance, whatever we branded it now, for for people that lose their jobs. And uh, so they're going, the, the social safety net is already there. For, and you know they can tweak it and say, okay, there's no one-week waiting period, and that's fine, that's good. But we don't have an equivalent to the unemployment insurance scheme for small business. Now, what Morneau and Trudeau announced today is going to go uh, a good, very good step in that direction, and it's absolutely essential because if we don't, and we say, look, you know, you're on your own, when this is over, when the coronavirus literally burns its way out, burns out, wears out, as it does, that we know that from past pandemics, then if we didn't bail them out, then we would have this giant hole in Canada where you know uh, yeah. hundreds of thousands of businesses have <laughs> failed. And then, of course, it has a knock-on effect on the real estate industry because all of those leases are not being paid, so there's all those empty storefronts. And uh, it's just a, it's a very bad situation. It's better to keep them going even if we do have to, uh, you know, use the national treasure and, and, and go deeply into debt, uh, the federal government is uh, very strong. And, of course, it does have a printing press called the Bank of Canada. And uh, so it has the capacity, and we now have the political will. And so I certainly applaud the Prime Minister and Morneau for focusing on, on, on uh, support for the small business sector. I mean, it's absolutely essential. It's not a luxury. Where is the opportunity here? Some will fail, some will succeed. How will this change the way we do things moving forward? That's a, I like your question. I like that question very much. It's a very, very big picture strategic question. And, and I'm going to give you a very concrete answer. I, there, I do believe there's going to be changes. I'm, I, much of life will go back to normal, and some things will not go back to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, let me go really big, big picture. I think China is the number one loser in this whole macroeconomic scheme. And that's because China in the last 20 years extremely successfully became the global supply chain to the world. To the world. No exaggeration. Largest exporter in the world. Isn't that something? Larger than the United States, even though its economy is 40% smaller than the United States. And I predict with absolute certainty that just about every business that's doing business with China in Canada, the U.S., Europe, elsewhere, are going to reevaluate their supply chain after this is over. Not out of anger. It's not out of anger and, and, and coronavirus. It's about the vulnerability 
that mm-hmm. they've exposed themselves to. And I and But are given, they too interwoven into the economy already to have that sort of position? Uh, well, uh, they I, they can unwind their position because uh, just two quick points. They're parallel to this coronavirus crisis. In the last five years, because China's become so successful, their wages have gone up, 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 and this is this, there's hard evidence for that. Mm. And the, the wage gap now is much, much smaller between China and uh, Canada and the States. So their competitive advantage on wages has, has d- diminished enormously. The second point, and McKinsey Consulting brought this out, because of the um, uh, advent of robotics and artificial intelligence, and manufacturing has become highly capital-intensive, highly automated. And so now wages in, in many manufacturing sectors, industries, excuse me, are down to about 10%. Well, when wages are only 10% of your total costs, it really doesn't matter if China's got a 20 or 30% advantage if it's only 10% of the cost of your business. And so well, you're going to see companies reshoring is the new buzzword. And, and you're going to, and I'm not saying they're all going to come back to Canada. I'm saying maybe they'll reshore and go to Mexico because Mexico has a big competitive advantage on wages. But the point is China's going to be the loser. Number two, very quickly, all of those businesses that have gone to uh, not flying uh, but have gone to uh, online communications using Zoom and using many other uh, Microsoft Teams, Skype for Business, there's many communication technologies, a good chunk of those are not going to return because they'll say, gee whiz, Look at all the money we saved during this crisis on travel and entertainment. Mm. Every time you fly anybody, it doesn't have to be a VP. It costs money to put them in a plane, put them in a hotel at 200 a night, 300 a night, pay their meals, etc., etc. And I think a lot of that travel, the business travel, which is much more profitable for airlines, a good chunk of that business travel is not going to come back. And uh, so I think that will change. It's going to change education. It's changing us now. I'm doing everything online with my students. I just did it this mm-hmm. morning. And it's ridiculously easy <laughs> to do so. I'm talking to you now from my home. <laughs> exactly. It's and incredible. It's I can't believe you. it, Ian. Yeah. It, it's, so there's going to be changes in the way we do business. I don't mean that we're not going to be a market economy anymore. I'm not talking that. We're going to be a market economy. But, and I'm not saying restaurants won't come back. I do believe they will come back because people are social animals. They want to go out and meet their friends and meet people that could become their friends and, and that sort of thing. And so that will continue. Um, you and I talked about online grocery sales, and I was always very pessimistic about that, saying we want to go in and squeeze the oranges, even though we shouldn't. We like to. But this may give a big boost. This will give a big boost to all e- e-commerce writ large and and specifically to groceries sales i think it'll give them a boost so there's going to be structural changes in the economy and it'll affect education sector for sure it's going to i'm not saying everyone's going to go to online of course we're still going to have public schools and high schools but i think you're going to see a, uh, a more education delivered online at the three levels meaning primary secondary and post-secondary uh, you're going to see it in business with uh, conferencing you're going to see a lot more conferencing software instead of airlines so the airlines are going to be losers net losers out of this and i'm not just talking about the fact that they're they're getting killed right now iata which is their international organization says that their total losses are about 200 billion that's with the b and that's amazing and that's around the world and uh, so they're not only the loser in the short run but in the longer term they're going to lose business that won't some of it some of that business won't return to the airlines so there's two big changes and then the third one is i think this is going to uh, that we're realizing the absolute crucial centrality of um, the the uh, the healthcare sector 
and uh, the, the pharmaceutical um, subsector and the R and D to produce new vaccines and and so forth for these these horrible diseases and illnesses when they arrive. So I see there's three big changes coming in three very large areas of the of society uh, going forward. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks very much, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.